0: Uri Levine is a rebel. He's created two unicorns, including Waze, which has improved the lives of millions of people. He loves building things from scratch and can't stand being a part of a large corporation. In fact, he takes pride in being fired from every corporate job he had before becoming a founder. His book, Fall in Love with a Problem, has been commended by the New York Times and is an international bestseller, and I'm proud to be its publisher. In this interview, we learn from the rebel himself how to build a unicorn and change the world for the better. Pleasure to be here with Uri Levine. Um, and I am very proud to publish his book, Fall in Love with a Problem, Not the Solution, a handbook for entrepreneurs. How are you doing today, Uri? Excellent. Thank you. Already noticed that you actually have a lot of
1: uh, bookmarks in the book. And so hopefully they become valuable to you. Um, Absolutely amazing.
0: This book, uh, I have to say, is incredible. I I learned so much from it. Uh, You know, I think, first of all, the title says a lot. Falling in love, being passionate about what you want to do. And and it really is an amazing uh, handbook for entrepreneurs, I mean, it's got everything here for for the entire journey. That's what's amazing. I, I'm not. I don't think I've ever seen that in another book where it takes you from inception to actually like IPOs and you know the whole road, even negotiating uh, like deal terms. Uh, you know, that's 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 what it's supposed to be, right?
1: Exactly. the The whole idea was to um, you know help people that. Um wants to build their own startups or wants to build their own business or actually um, in their own business or even you know being worked at the business and to understand more about how to improve and how to become better and how to increase the likelihood of being successful.
0: So let's talk about that. You've, you've kind of cracked, I guess, <laughs> how to increase the likelihood of being successful because you've, you've been involved in, <laughs> in two unicorns, uh, the most famous of which, of course, is your first one, Waze. Um, what what would you say are the, I don't know, the the key tips for building a unicorn?
1: <clears throat> so, so really, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, and, and this is, uh, you know, we can spend the whole hour speaking about that, right? Because um, um, the first realization is that building a startup is a journey, right? And then you need to understand the different phases of the journey and the fact that you need to be successful in all of those phases in order to build a unicorn. So let's go to the beginning, right? The journey. And, and the journey, let me define that as a roller coaster journey with ups and downs. And look, if you'll tell me that all the businesses in the world have ups and downs, I agree. But the frequency of those when you're building startups are way higher. I think that uh, Ben Horvitz from at Horwitz Horvitz venture capital firm has the best uh, quote on that. And before he was partner at the venture capital firm, he was a CEO of a startup and he was asked whether or not he was sleeping well at night as a CEO. He said, oh yeah, I slept like a baby. I woke up every two hours and cried, right? And so it's a roller coaster journey. It's a journey of failures, right? Because, um, <clears throat> you know, we're trying to build something new that no one did before. and uh, And when we do, we have the conviction that we know exactly what we are doing, but the reality is that we don't. So we try, we try one thing and it doesn't work. We keep on trying different things until we find one thing that does work. And if you realize that this is going to be a journey of failures, then um, then you will need to fail fast because the faster that you fail, you actually still have plenty of time to make another experiment, another attempt, another version, another approach. Um, and the more that you have, you simply increase the likelihood of being successful. Right? So just imagine that you are playing basketball and you are trying to score from half court. Now, if you have one shot, you might be able to make it, but less likely, if you have 50 shots, you will make it. And so this is the journey of failures and it's a long journey, a very long journey. And it's multiple phases of this journey, right? So building a unicorns means that everyone believes you are going to become the market leader. And you will need to figure out all the different phases of building a startup, right? So starting from product market fit, which means, basically means that you create value to your customers and then figuring out a business model and then figuring out your growth strategy. And then you are actually on the runway of, for taking off and to become very successful. So, so the challenge of building a, um, a unicorn is that you actually need to be successful with all those different um, journeys. Now, the good news is that if you're going to be successful with figuring out product market fit, you're likely to be successful. Product market fit basically means that you create value to your customers, to your users, to your customers. And look, if you don't figure out product market fit, you will die, as simple as that. You actually never heard of a company that did not figure out product market fit.
0: They simply died. That's it. So so just, just to explain, product market fit... I think you mentioned the book is, is measured by retention, whether or not people keep using, they come back and use the app, right? That's, that's the key element. Exactly.
1: And and this is really simple, right? We say product market feed means that you create value to your customers. Guess what? If you create value for them, they will come back as simple as that. And so at the end of the day to get to product market feed, the only metric that matters is retention. And, uh, um, and if you don't figure out that, that means that you don't bring value. Now, the process of getting there is way longer, right? This is going to be three to five years of a journey and a journey of failures, and you have no traction, right? So it's going to be, it's like you are in the middle of the desert, right? There is nothing around you and you are making progress, but you don't see that you're making progress. In fact, if you'll need to raise new capital, while you haven't figured out product market fit, this is going to be a nightmare. This is going to be very hard because you have nothing to show that you have made significant progress. Now, I think that for a second, I would say just uh, think of uh, of Thomas Edison, right? So Thomas Edison um, was responsible for all the lights that we have around us. Um, he has made a lot of experiments, really a lot of experiments. And one day someone came to him and said, look, you have failed a thousand times. Why don't you give up? And he said, no. Up until now, I found a thousand ways that it doesn't work. And each one of them is making a progress or making me move forward towards finding the one that does. And and during this trying to figure out product market fit, this is exactly what you're going to experiment. You think that you're going to build it and this is it? No, you're going to build it and it doesn't work. You build it, and it does work, but users are not coming. You build it, and it does work, and users are coming, but they're not using. They're using, but not returning, and so forth. And each time is going to be another step further. Occasionally, it's going to be a couple of steps backward, right? Because uh, you ended up with something that is lesser than before. So once you figure out product market fit, then uh, the sky is the limit because you create value. If you create value, you will be successful. If you create a lot of value, you will be very successful. And if you create a little value, then you'll be less successful. Um, So I mentioned, you know, you never heard of a company that did not figure out product market fit; They simply died. But once you do, and for a second, I would say think of All the applications that you are using every day, from from searching Google, using Waze or WhatsApp or Netflix or Uber or whatever it is, and ask yourself, what is the difference between any of those that you are using today and the first time that you use that? And the answer is that there is no difference. We are searching Google today the same way that we search Google for the first time in our life. We're using WhatsApp or Waze or Uber or Netflix the same way that we did it for the first time in our life. So once you figure out product market fit, you don't change that anymore. This is the value that you create to your users, and you don't want to change that anymore. You are moving in your journey from figuring out product market fit phase, which is the first and the most important phase, into the next phase of the journey, which could be about figuring out business model, or could be about figuring out growth strategy, or could be about let's go globally into different countries than, than where we are.
0: Cool, love it. Um, and obviously you need to create value, but you also have to be able to capture value, right? Uh, some of that value, that's another key thing. But assuming if you create enough value, you give all these guidelines. I mean, you say in the book that you usually can try and capture, let's say, um, 10 to 25 percent of the value that you create. So if it's a B2B software um, product, then that's what you should be charging more or less. You you give good indications of how to try and and create. And that's you know, I, I found that very very useful. You have lots of useful statistics. Also how many failures to expect. I think you said that when you go and you pitch to to VCs, you're probably going to only get like a two percent uh, uh, you know like uh, batting rate, something like that. So you need to understand how the odds are stacked against you and know how to roll with them and then also know how to charge. There's all these amazing, I think, kind of, I guess I would call them uh, rules of thumb that you, um, that you include in the book. And I find that a really good compass to kind of make some sense out of all the uncertainty that one, that one has to deal with, because it is about uncertainty at the end of the day, right? <laughs> Of course,
1: you know, we are going into a journey that no one did before. And so everything is about uncertainty, right? And uh, and to a certain extent, I would say um, um, one of the um, important part of being an entrepreneur is that you actually accept um, uncertainty. So your towards towards risk is higher. Your approach towards risk is probably higher than than most of the other population. Most of the people they are risk-averse and, um, and to a certain extent, I would say entrepreneurs are usually not necessarily risk-averse or less risk-averse than, than most of the population.
0: And but, you, you um, certainly are, you, you're you very uh, willing to take risk, both in the sports as a skier and in how you live your life as an entrepreneur, I think, right? Because you even mentioned that most of the money that you've made, you've invested back into other startups as well, so you you like risk.
1: Um, you know, it's not the risk that I like. It's it's the value that I generate, right? It's the impact that I want to create. And at the end of the day, if you want to create impact, then you will need to do things that are extraordinary. And if you want to create things that are extraordinary, then that means that many of them are not going to work, right? Which basically says, okay, I'm going to take risks, right? I'm going to try. And, uh, um, and the fear of failure... Is a major limiting factor for going into an entrepreneurship journey, right? Because if people are afraid to fail, they're not going to try something new. If you are not going to try something new, then you don't become an entrepreneur.
0: Well, I think this is this is a, a really interesting question. So obviously, you need to create something extraordinary if you want to make a huge impact. You, you mentioned that, um, and so. It's interesting. I, I obviously I love your book, and I've also read some other good books recently, including you know the Lean Startup. Um, and I think you know a lot of your ideas are based also right about, about the idea of keeping lean, lots of testing, improving. Right? You is there anything you don't agree with in the in the Lean Startup?
1: So uh, so so to a certain extent, there there are probably very good um, um, insights in the Lean Startup, and it's uh, it's one approach. I think that. Um, um, it's not about agreeing or disagreeing, because obviously there are things that I would do differently. But, but the general approach of failing fast is basically say, look, if, you, if you're going to build a monster, it's going to be a while, right? And you're not going to fail fast. If you want to fail fast, then you need to think out of the boxes. What is the minimum that I need to do in order to qualify or disqualify my thesis, right? And uh, um, and to a certain extent, and this is really important, disqualifying is equally important as qualifying, right? So you try something, it doesn't work, that's awesome. Right now you just eliminated it well, from well, the well, well, list. That goes back like
0: to it, Edison, as you said before, with a thousand of like attempts,
1: right? Exactly. And and so I don't need I don't think that you actually need a thousand. You probably need way less. But at the end of the day, um, it's, uh, um, it's the ability to, um, the agility that you will need uh, to move from one experiment to another experiment. And the challenge is that for each one of those experiments, you're going with a conviction that this one is going to work. And, uh, and if it doesn't, then tomorrow morning, you need to be with a new idea and with the same level of conviction that this one is going to work. And if it doesn't, then the next day is going to be exactly the same. And every time you go with the conviction and with the knowing, you know, it's it's like in your heart, you know that this time it's definitely going to work. And if it doesn't, then you recover overnight, and that's it, right? You only Tenacity. have overnight. you
0: have to exactly. be tenacious.
1: Yeah. And uh, because otherwise, if you're going to build something that is you know, very complex, very long to build. What happened is that you vested yourself into the making. And if it doesn't work, then you will try to make it work or force it to work or tell yourself that it does work because you have vested a lot of efforts and resources and commitments into this one shot. And and my approach is no, there are multiple
0: shots. That makes sense. And just to just to be clear, I mean, Eric Reese talks about a minimum viable product. You mentioned good enough, uh, which for you is is something that has decent retention. Is that more or less the same thing or is there a, a subtle difference between the two?
1: So I have a very different approach because um, in a minimal viable product, the challenge is um, is that the product requires a lot of things. Right. So it's not just uh, um, the, re- the retention is the end game, right? It's the end result. Mm-hmm. But throughout this journey, and this is where you start to think about the user, you start from the point of view that the user never heard of you, right? And all of a sudden, he figure out that okay, there is a new service, new things, new something, and decided that the user decided that they want to try it, right? And so, let's say it's an app, and they download the app, and they start the app, and then what? they don't know what to expect, right? And so all of a sudden you need to deal with adoption, which is way more important because it's come earlier in the phase than retention, right? Retention is the end game, but the key indicator will be about adoption. And adoption is a matter of selling the story, right? Selling the value proposition because otherwise the users don't even know what to expect in terms of the value. And then the process of getting to the value, which is about simplicity. And then after that, it's making sure that there is enough value and the the result of that will be a retention, right? And so there are multiple phases throughout the funnel of using the service for the first time that are critical, right? And if you're trying to build a minimal viable product, then you need to address all of those.
0: Mm. And
1: my approach would be, no, 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 go to the end figure out that the value is significant. And this is maybe something completely different, right? So occasionally I would say, can you try that in a WhatsApp group? Can you try that without writing not even a single line of code and go to people and do manual work for them and then ask them, is that was that valuable and how much are you willing to pay for that?
0: So, so just to put that into context, this an example was uh, you had a startup that would... Uh, uh, collect things from the, the Israeli post office and deliver it. And you were saying basically instead of having to build all the technology to automate it, you just had humans try and do it through, let's say, WhatsApp uh, exactly. requests to see if there actually was a demand for it. So you're not even you. It's even it's not even a minimum viable product. It's, it's it's a it's a pseudo product basically to see if people even want to play with it.
1: It's not a product, but what I did is validated the need and validated the value. Right. and so people did come back right which basically say okay now I'm going to use this service for for each and every time that I'm making a, you know that I receive a package in the office right you think of the uk and you occasionally will see people traveling the train with packages that they have sent to their to their to their office because uh, <laughs> because otherwise they're not going to be home when the package is being delivered right yeah, and okay. so obviously, if we, if we could do that in a way that it's make it much simpler and more convenient for people, there is value. And uh, um, or it's not obviously that was the theory. That was the, the thesis. Um, and we validated that through WhatsApp uh, uh, group. And we actually did uh, manual work for people. And we retrieved the packages from the postal offices and delivered it to their home at the evening when they are at home. And they loved that and they paid for it. And they basically, that was the qualification of the need and the willingness to pay and the value that we bring without even having a product there. Now, it also makes the product really simple afterwards, right? Because you basically say, okay, wait a minute, what exactly did I do that work, right? And so I ask people to you know, use the camera on their phone to scan the, 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 the notice that you get from the mail services and send it over and uh, use the camera to scan their ID so I can actually retrieve that for them and uh, tick on a, on a um, power of attorney or a sort of a power of attorney that allow me to collect that package for them. And now this is what the product needs to do. That's it, nothing else, right? And then you will go into further complexity, which is, okay, when exactly do you want the package to be delivered, right? And this could be ad hoc or scheduled or whatever. But you end up with understanding how the product needs to look like from from the user perspective. And so this is a a way more powerful approach than than thinking of the minimal viable product. It's thinking about the, the value that you bring and uh you're you're validating
0: it's it's use case validation prior to to testing because if you
1: start with building a product then what you don't know is whether or not this is the right product or not yeah
0: so i mean let me ask you you obviously you know you did that with with ways you started with a a very simple product that didn't do that much you actually had to build the maps as you start went along um and you know there was a lot of iterations. Um, is it is it harder to do with uh, B two C apps? Because I mean that's where you've kind of you have also you've also done some B two B startups. But um, what's yeah? Wh- how do you how what is the process for you uh, in, in terms of B two C? Do you find that to be harder easier? What uh, yeah?
1: So if you if you accept the approach of moving fast and, uh, um, and failing fast and speaking with users all the time in order to improve, then B2C might be easier for you because the feedback the feedback loop is way shorter than B2B, right? B2B is basically saying, okay, we have these requirements, right? And then you go back and you say, okay, I would need actually six months to develop those requirements. And this is what the customer say, right? And so you don't know if, uh, um, if this is uh, consistent across multiple customers, is this is going to end up as a one of a kind. And is the, are these the real requirements? Because in many cases, and this is in particular in product development, we tend to overload the system or the app or the service with features. And we don't need a lot. Right? If I would ask you, you know, just think of, uh, all the apps that you have used today, right? So, so they're probably maybe Google and maybe Ways and maybe WhatsApp and maybe email and different things that you have used today. In answer the next question, right? How many features have you used in each one of them?
0: Very little. And Usually you might right. end up.
1: Maybe one, maybe two, maybe <laughs> three, right? So I, yeah. I sent on WhatsApp and I actually read on a muscle so, and I replied, right? That's it, three features, end of the day. And, uh, um, and if you would ask yourself, um, and, and so, you know, Leonardo da Vinci said that uh, simplicity is the ultimate sophistication. It's really hard to build something that is simple enough. And uh, um, um, because we usually tend to think that, okay, if I allow more features and therefore I create more value to my customers. But the reality is that what's going to happen is that you are actually going to have way less customers because they will fail in their funnel of adoption because it's too complex and they don't know what to do. It's, the state of mind is that the next user that is going to use your, your your application or service or whatever it is, for them, it's the first time in their life they don't even know what to expect. And if this is going to be simple enough for them, then they will figure that out. If it's going to be too complex, guess what? They are going to give up. Yeah. The alternative for them is really simple. I will do whatever I did yesterday, and that was just fine. And so they're trying to move out of their comfort zone, trying something new. And if it's not going to be simple enough, or if it will challenge them in any way, or if it will ask them a question that they don't, need, they don't know the answer, or if they will ask them a question that they don't know, why do you need that information? That will be the end of their journey. And for you, that means that you just uh, invested a lot of effort into user acquisition, and you ended up with no user.
0: Yeah. Okay, so another uh, great chapter. There's so many great chapters in the book, uh, but uh, I really loved your chapter on firing and hiring and how you emphasize that one should start with firing because uh, even though a good employee can, you know, add a tremendous amount of value and a bad one maybe it seems like they're not doing that much damage, but in the long run you say that, you know, bad employees create tremendous damage because, you know, it shows that this is not a great team to work at. Your true talent will leave, and it shows that the the management basically isn't willing to make hard decisions, right?
1: So, so you know, I've I've developed this approach um, after speaking with many entrepreneurs that their startup failed, and asked them why, what happened, and uh, and about half say the team was not right, and I kept on asking, okay, what do you mean the team was not right, and there was. Uh, Most of them say, you know, we had this guy not good enough. So not good enough was main reason. Another reason that I heard quite often is that we had uh, communication issues, which actually I called uh, more of uh, ego management issues. But then I asked them the most interesting question. When did you know that the team is not right? And all of them said within the first month. I said, wait a minute. If you knew within the first month that the team is not right and you didn't do anything, The problem was not that the team was not right. The problem was that the CEO did not make hard decisions. Now, making hard decisions is hard. Making easy decisions is easy. This is why most people don't like to make the hard decision. In a small organization like Startup, they will go all the way to the top. Now, here comes the challenge, right? It's a small organization. There are maybe 10, 20, 30 people there. And there was someone that shouldn't be there. Everyone knows. If, there is, if you're in a small team and there is someone that shouldn't be there, if I would ask you, did you know? Of course you did. Everyone knows. Everyone knows. And the CEO doesn't do anything. And this is where it's becoming complex because then the result, by the way, the result is always the same. The top performing people would leave. But the challenge is that everyone thinks that the CEO lacks the leadership of making hard decisions. And this is the beginning of the end. One of the conclusion is, look, every time, if you're a hiring manager, if you hire a new person, mark your calendar for 30 days down the road and ask yourself one question. Knowing what I know today, would I hire this person? Now, if the answer is no, then fire them immediately. Because what happened is that this person is already set on a trajectory of not being successful, and it creates damage for everyone not just for you or for the organization or the rest of the team, but also for that particular person. That particular person already knows that he doesn't fit. And he is trying to fight that off. But the the best thing to do is actually fire them because they deserve to be successful. They're not going to be successful here. And you own them the opportunity to be successful someplace else. Now, when you're starting to think about, okay, what does it mean about my existing organization, right? Then so let me let me ask you the following. Let just say that you are in a large corporate, right? There are hundreds of people, thousands of people, whatever number of people. As soon as you have more than a couple of hundreds of people you will end up with normal distribution. So just imagine normal distribution. We have amazing people here and very good people and good people and less than good people. And then we also have a bunch of people that shouldn't be there. What will make bigger impact? Hiring another amazing person or firing one that shouldn't be there? Now the answer is actually very simple. Firing someone that shouldn't be there because everyone knows. And this is why the impact is going to be dramatically bigger. But how do you know in an existing organization? Look, if everyone knows, then ask them. You don't need to ask everyone. It's enough that you will, you will ask some few top performer people, some key employees that you're basically saying these are the, the, you know, the, 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 the cornerstones of the organization. You would ask them. If you're going to build a new team, who, is, who are, are you going to take with you to the new team? And who... Okay, well, let me, you
0: let me ask you another question. Um, somewhere in the book, you say that one should avoid hiring uh, nonconformists. And, uh, and so uh, does that mean that you wouldn't hire yourself then?
1: Of course. Corporate will, will not hire me. And they actually will hire me, right? So initially, they would think that I have a lot to add. But I am a non-conformist, right? I am, I'm at the end of the day, I am a maker. They will fire me. They will fire me because I don't take anything for granted because I will challenge many things because if we are doing something wrong, then I will say we are doing something wrong. Now, now corporates don't like to hear that, right? They, they want to think that they are doing
0: everything right. And, but, on, but, when, but, when, but when you're a startup, though... Do you still hire a nonconformist? I guess you can if they're if they're not as long as they're high up in the chain. Perhaps is the is in,
1: the answer. In a startup, you actually need yeah. non-conformist, right? And this is something that's really important to realize.
0: But so, but do you need them. Do you need them alongside the entire a, the entire company, or just at the top?
1: The entire company, and the reason is this is a corporate. This is a startup, right? These guys know exactly what's their value proposition, what's their product, how is their marketing strategy, what's their business model, and they all they have to do is execute the same thing. These guys know absolutely nothing, and they need to explore, right? And the exploration is going to happen with the the entrepreneurship spirit, right? So we're going to try different things, and we're going to try awkward things, and we're going to try different approach and we're going to try whatever you want to try actually makes sense and for those you do need the entrepreneur spirit now as the company grows and moving from let's just speak about product market fit, right so so initially we don't know what's going to work so we try different features and eventually we find one that does work from this point on we don't want to change the product anymore. So now in the product perspective, we are moving into corporate side. Now, yeah. we just need to execute. We don't need to change the product anymore. Unless we will fail You know, realizing that, wait a minute, the business model requires a new set of features and we have different types of customers and therefore we're going back into product development of, of, the, of the business model, right? But in general, <clears throat> when you move from this phase to this phase, when you move from the exploration into figuring out the business model or the product market fit or whatever, then you need to change the DNA of the organization. And now you need to move from exploration into execution. And this is a very major challenge for all companies in the world.
0: That makes that makes perfect sense. I mean, so, so just going back, I mean, we need rebels at the beginning of the journey. Um, you know, it's interesting. I also just recently read, uh, and actually, before we, we go to this, uh, I'll say, you know, in your book, you mentioned, you know, you were a rebel in school. You, you were a troublemaker. You skipped lots of classes. You know, you've always done things to your own tune. Uh, you know, you, you, you you've been fired from every corporate gig you've had, and you're proud of it, basically. And, and it's interesting, I. I also just read uh, recently Peter Thiel zero to one I know Peter as well and uh and you know he seems to celebrate uh, rebels you know he he seems to almost be disappointed that he went through uh, an academic trajectory you know he likes uh, college dropouts he even encourages people to do that he mentions that uh you know that the uh, his so-called paypal mafia you know they were they were all rebels basically and I think you mentioned that four out of the six founders had all built bombs when they were in high school, uh, you know, independently, just as, as something they were doing for fun. So, I think what is it about that that rebel mindset that, you know, that creates uh unicorn companies?
1: So, so let me start by saying that um I think that PayPal was uh, the most amazing company in the history. And the reason is not PayPal is what happened to the to the team that was there at the beginning right and each one of them went and did absolutely amazing things and kept on kept on building amazing companies right and so um i think that they have obviously have done something right at the at the kitchen of of paypal that have cooked amazing entrepreneurs that later on have changed the world or keep on changing the board in multiple phases so um so so this is one part that is important to, to remember. And for a second, I would say, wait a minute. PayPal was one of a kind, right? You don't see a lot of those that have, you know, people that have left there have built absolutely amazing companies and constant, consistently building companies, right? And uh, um, so in that sense, uh, um, obviously, PayPal is, is an amazing sample of one. And I don't know how to replicate that. And I don't know how to um, rebuild it. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, I might have the spirit of moving to the next one and the next one, and the next one. But many people basically say, no, 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 I'm building something. And I want it to last and I want it to be my creation for the world, Right. And I want to stick with that to make sure that it actually happens. Yeah. And uh, um and there is no right or wrong. There is one way or a different way, and there, there is no right or wrong with them, between them. There are simply preferences. Um, and, uh, um, and I don't see myself as um, remaining relevant when a startup becomes a corporate. And if they're successful, they will become a corporate. Um, and because I don't like that phase and, uh, and even though that most of the value is being created when you move from a startup into a corporate. So once you figure out all the different journeys and you actually have a product market fit and a business model and a growth strategy and so forth, then you start to create significant more value, um, for, for your shareholders and obviously for more and more and more customers and users, right? So, so in that sense, um, I'm the early stage uh, person. I like the, the creations from, from scratch into something significant. And, uh, um, and, and you, you know, we're speaking about me as an entrepreneur, but for a second I would say I'm also a teacher. So I feel equally rewarded when I build stuff myself or I guide someone to build it. And the result is that I ended up after ways, um, you know, not building my own, but actually guiding uh, 10 different CEOs and helping them to become successful. And uh, um, and this is why I wrote the book. I wrote the book in order to uh, share my know-how with uh, more and more and more people um, in order to help them to become more successful and therefore increase my
0: impact in that sense. That's great. And you do. You do just that. and it's a, It's an incredible journey. Um, going back to to Peter's book for a second, uh, and then we'll, we'll we'll bounce back to yours. But he talks uh, about uh, uh, how important it is actually to try and build a, a sort of monopoly. So to be, in a sense, that's what you call a market leader, I guess. And uh, and and he, it's quite interesting because he actually says that you know it's only when you have a big chunk of something. I guess okay, but this is again more in the corporate phase when you're you're very profitable that you can keep. Innovating and investing. If you're just competing, he says, competition can between two companies can lead to basically a situation where both of them are just, you know, devouring each other's profits. That's not a good place to be, right? So, when when you think of a new idea, a new company, is that something you you, you have in mind? Basically, trying to how how can you create a market leader rather than just compete? Does that is that something you think about?
1: So. Uh, <clears throat> So, so compete basically say that you have similar value proposition, right? And and that is not going to work. You need to have a different value proposition. If you're going to tell someone mine is better, you might be right, but simply no one cares, right? Simply
0: no and one cares. and even if it is true, it doesn't matter, right? Because we saw with Beta and VHS or with Blu-ray exactly. and DVDs, often the, the better product doesn't win.
1: Um, it doesn't make any difference, right? Because you when you say to someone mine is better then you expect them to switch from whatever they have to yours, right? But if theirs are good enough, they're not going to switch. And so you'll need to come up with something that is not mine is better. You will need to come up with mine is different. And it could be different because of a business model. It could be different because of uh, uh, it does something else or the value proposition is different and so forth. But it has to be different. Now, in general, and, and this is more of a generic statement, right? We would like to think of the um, um, developing countries uh, that have free economy and that the free economy, the nature of or, or the essence of the free economy is the free market. But capitalism is not about free market. Capitalism is about building monopolies. This is how you make maximum profit. And uh, um And so if you want to make maximum profit, then you need to build a monopoly. If you want to create maximum value, then competition is actually good. And uh, and look, if you create maximum value, at the end of the day, you will be profitable and you will be very profitable, Um, but you don't need to behave like a monopoly. And what we are seeing in most of the markets today, in particular in the US, is consolidations of uh, very few companies leading the entire market and this is not, uh, this is at the expense of the consumers, right? Or the, yes. or the customers.
0: Yeah.
1: And I don't think that this is the good approach.
0: Right. Well, this is, yeah, that's the definition. Obviously, the big companies buying out, uh, you know, the unicorns or the smaller companies to protect themselves. Absolutely. Um, but I mean, in a sense, you know, before you sold Ways, um, you know, you had built a monopoly of sorts, right?
1: Um. Providing free service.
0: (laughs) Yes, yes, it's true. You, you you know, you, you, it was not an exploitative monopoly, but you certainly, you know, it dominated its markets, right? I Agree,
1: but uh, I think that you know, when you provide free service, uh, then at the end of the day, you create value by definition.
0: Yeah, Yeah. you say. You say in the book, what you said, like you know, free and good enough is is pretty much impossible to compete with, right?
1: Exactly. What, what exactly is going to be your value proposition? You're going to tell someone that uh, yours is better. They don't care. It's good enough. Yeah. Yours is cheaper. Wait a minute. It's free. You cannot compete with good enough and free. Just think of Gmail.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. Um, let's see another, let's see some interesting other topics in the book. I mean, there, there there's so many you know you mentioned for example to know if your retention is good enough you you gave uh, a rule of thumb of 30% being being a sort of metric to see if that's if that's if that's good enough for a uh a b2c model and and if that's a situation you can you can go for growth but if you have much less you need to start finding how to capture money to monetize that earlier right uh is that right so so
1: so it's, it's sort of, right? It's, uh, um, the, the challenge is, okay, once you figure out product market fit, then how do you decide if your next part of the journey is going to be monetization, which is figuring out the business model or growth? And, and the reality is that um, you would like to think that it's up to you and therefore you're likely to try growth. And if it doesn't work, then you'll fall back into monetization. And what I'm saying is, no, it's not up to you it's a matter of the use case of your product and if you have high frequency of use then you will end up with word of mouth as your growth engine at the end of the day a lot of people are going to use the product On, on, on at the end of the day people are going to use that with high frequency and every time that they use that it's an opportunity for them to tell someone else and you will end up with uh, uh, with word of mouth growth strategy And therefore, you should start with growth strategy and only after that go to monetization. If the frequency of use is low, you will not end up with word of mouth. And you will need to acquire users all of your life. And the only way that you can do that, if it makes makes business sense, right? So you will need to figure out the business model first and then make sure that you actually capture enough value to allow yourself to spend on the marketing growth. And therefore, the decision whether or not you're going to go into business model, figuring out business model or figuring out growth is not up to you. It's up to the use case of the product.
0: Okay, so first of all, I want to say uh, I love how the book has again, it, it gives great guidance on how to create uh, stock options, you know how to vest, how to you know when you even give recommendations how how much should, uh, CEOs be allowed to cash out in the process of the journey in terms of like selling some of their shares to, you know, new investors or, you know, lots of different secondary markets. And, and I think, I think that's amazing because uh, I, I'm not used to seeing that, that type of information. For example, you had a really cool theory in there, which I love, which said, you know, first of all, try and understand, um, what is a, a life-changing amount of money for a person? And you said that it's usually approximately twice as much of whatever they have, uh, might be more. And and basically, that itself is an argument to letting CEOs collect a little bit of money along the way because it means that they're less likely to cash out too soon because they already have more money, basically. So no, no need to, to explain that. I, I love that. Um, but you also explain how... How important it is to 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 kept, you know to have all of the employees feel like they're in the boat or on the bus basically, um, and uh, and and so do you have I mean is there I don't know is there any big insight you can give about how to how to incentivize uh, employees is should only the CEO be allowed to cash out during the process should some of the other senior management get get some opportunities to do that what's what's your take on that.
1: So you know, in my mind, uh, all employees, in particular in the early days, but also later on, um, should be part of the of the company, right? Should have equity position in the company, and the better the company becomes, the more money that they are making. To a certain extent, you create alignment of interest between the employees and the shareholders, right? Because they are also shareholders. Now, if you will need to define. Look, this goes back into the early days when you define the DNA of the company. When you start a company, you have an opportunity, once in a lifetime, opportunity for the company to define the DNA of itself. And as a founder, you have the ability to choose that. And you want to build this place to be an amazing place for you and for everyone that is going to join your journey. And so to a certain extent, I would say building a DNA of a company is one of the first things that you would need to do. And I think that what he should be doing is basically saying, okay, in terms of stakeholders in the company, the employees comes first. So maybe you would say, no, wait a minute, Uh, me and the funding team are the first, okay, but the employees are then second. And other shareholders or customers, and for a second, I would say customers or users are going to be third and shareholders, they are the last one on, the, on this value chain. Now, in many cases, um, I've seen companies that are building it exactly the other way around, right? And they are not building sustainable value and they're not being a place that people would like to work at. Because people have a lot of motivations. At the end of the day, if you look back at all the working places that you have worked before and that you like them, and I would ask you why, you will tell me the team or my direct supervisor was absolutely amazing, right? And so it was about the people and not about how much money you've made and not about whether or not your shareholders were important or not important or or uh, or considered to be um, significant or not and not about the board of directors. It was about the people that you work with. And so in that sense, what I would say is that I would like to build companies that are amazing for all the employees. And part of it is to make them part of the game. And part of the game means that you share more and more and more um, you know, equity position with them. And you're doing that throughout all of the employees. And when there are opportunities to cash out a
0: bit, you should allow that to everyone. Cool, that that makes sense, uh, uh, and uh, and certainly you've made a lot of uh, employees rich. I think you even mentioned. I think was it the janitor at uh, was it Ways or Move It that also got some uh, made some good money.
1: The, the janitor at Ways actually had equity, and that was it was actually life changing event for all the employees of Ways. Yeah, and uh, um, and and if I would like to think about something that was the most dramatic, that was not my dares.
0: Oh, I loved, I loved you. You you told a story about, uh, uh, it was the sale, uh, it was the way sale, I believe, yeah? Where you you mentioned how uh, the CEO had to call all these ex-employees who had left and had some shares and, and basically uh, you know get them to sign off on the deal but how he, he it was so enjoyable to hear that go one by one and in the future you would always go one by one it's so it's such a a beautiful moment to milk i guess in a sense when you when you transform someone's life
1: basically that was the case of move it and uh, um oh move it okay and i think that after that the ceo told me that was the most amazing part of his entire journey
0: it's incredible incredible um let me also ask you, I mean, it's interesting, you talk about obviously you know, taking care of the team, taking care of the employees. I, I wanted to ask, maybe it's a little controversial, but uh, in the sale to Google for ways, was Was there? Waze, there, you talked about how you wanted to make sure that out of the $1.15 billion, uh you-, you negotiated that more of it go to the employees. Uh, isn't that a conflict of interest of, sh- of sorts for the shareholders? Yes. <laughs> okay. So
1: you yeah, don't care at the end of the day if you when when you define priorities and you say employees comes first, then there is a certain point of time that you need to step up to those priorities, right, and that was that point of time,
0: okay, all right, so you own it you're, you're you have no problem with basically owning that and 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 i, I that's cool, I get it uh, um and let me ask you also it's interesting. You you talk also, you give all this, this great insight about, you know, when you try and grow and go global, how, what countries to go for, um, you know, you mentioned how the UK is very expensive because usually you've got American firms moving over with more experience and money. And that's a really hard market to go into. You talk about how much you love, uh, I think it was countries like, uh, Brazil and Mexico. Um, and, uh, In some other countries, do you want to maybe just share some quick strategy about that? Because I find that to be really interesting. I think most people don't even think about that. I
1: agree. And, uh, you know, when I wrote this chapter, I ended up with uh, writing and removing, writing and removing a few times. And the reason is very simple, right? If you're going to start your startup in the UK, then you will start in London. And after you kind of figure that out in London, you will go to the US. If you will start in the US, you will build it in the US and you will spend the next five years figuring out growth in the US and maybe even more than that. And when it's time to go global, you will basically say, I'm successful in the US, I can get indefinite funding, and I'm going to grow through acquisitions. But if you start in a small place, Your market is insignificant, right? Israel is a small market. Latvia is a small market. Sweden is a small market. Estonia is a small market. Netherlands is a small market. All those, when you start a startup there, you think from the first day, okay, so I'm gonna build my proof of concept here, but the market here is insignificant. I will need to go someplace else. And the first uh, um, gravitation would be, okay, we need to go to the US because it's the most significant market. And I agree, it's the most significant market. But actually, I'm suggesting a different strategy. You need to go to a different market, a significant market that is easy to win. And the US, is a significant market, no doubt. But it's not easy to win. You will face competition there. You will face expensive user acquisition. You will face um, the fact that PR will end up to be local and not global. You will face major challenges, and therefore, you should ask yourself, okay, if not the U.S., then where? Where to? And I would say, okay, wait a minute. I want you to think of um, some of the most successful applications in the world, and see where they where their major markets are, right? And so for ways, U.S. is number one, and then Brazil, and then I think it it might be either France or um, or um, India. Right, And for WhatsApp, this is going to be Brazil's number one, and then India, and then Indonesia. And you will end up with figuring out that many of those markets um, are actually pretty significant. So we don't think that uh, Indonesia with 280 million people is a market worth exploring. And for a second, I would say it's definitely a market worth exploring. Or Brazil with 210 million people, or Turkey with 90 million people, or or Mexico with 120 million people, right? Each one of them is going to end up as a significant market, and you should choose the one that is the easiest one to win out of the whole significant market. And and I think that I'm saying in my book that I actually was hesitating whether or not I should have this chapter, because if you start in the U.S., you don't really care. If you'll be successful in the U.S., you will end up to be successful. That's it.
0: So let's talk about Waze for a second. Obviously, you know, you're you're not involved anymore, but I know you feel very passionately still about the company. You even mentioned in the book how you sold your Tesla because it doesn't support Waze. Uh you love using Waze. And and you talk about the fact, it's funny, you you mentioned that you know originally the the idea was to solve traffic jams, but actually, you know, there still are traffic jams, but then you've highlighted how Waze is actually about uh getting rid of uncertainty. So basically knowing when you're going to arrive and that, that is, you know, that it solves so that, that it's done. But even, but you even mentioned that, Hey, maybe one day when there are driverless cars, there may not be uh, use for ways at that point. Uh, although probably those driverless cars will be using ways in some way. Anyhow, right. It just won't be the drivers. Um, but, uh, but basically it seems like the future is always about disruption, right? Um, and, and I guess I wonder, how, how do you see it? How do you look for, for ways to disrupt? What is it that, you know, usually you, you talk about things that you, you feel emotional about, the, a problem you want to solve, and that's, that seems to be how you find ways to disrupt. Is, is that the journey, or how, how does it work, basically? So, so
1: ways disruption is, is um, you know, coming in two folds, right? Number one, it's free. It was the first one to be free and offer, you know, turn-by-turn driving app. And Google Maps came later. Um, And uh, and free and good enough, we already established that underlining assumptions wins the market, right? No one can compete with that. Uh, And so the disruption was because it's free, but the use case is very different, right? If I would ask people that are using Waze today, how often do you use Waze? They will tell me every day, right? Or every time that I get into the car. And if I would ask people that are using Google Maps, how often do you use Google Maps? They will tell me when I need it. And so the use case is very different. Um, And uh, um, and when you think of disruption, then there are a few questions that you need to ask yourself. Um, For example, um, who will be out of business if you are successful? Now, if you don't know to answer that, you don't think big enough. If you are planning a disruption, that means that the market is going to reshape itself and the new market equilibrium will be established.
0: And just 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 to trajectory for a sec, if you're going to go for VC money, you have to be able to show something like that. Otherwise, VCs won't touch you, right?
1: No, you need to show that you actually have a significant and big market, right? If you are going to become a billion-dollar revenues market in without disrupting the market, that's actually good
0: enough. Ah, okay, fair enough.
1: Um, so... Um, and, and by the way, disruptive approach, even though that everyone would like to think that, it's the hardest one to accept, right? Because you need to think way over the horizon. You need to think um, nonlinear in order to basically say this is how the market will shift and change. And, and disruption is about change of market equilibrium, change of behavior. And it's not about new technology. It may be a derivative of a new technology, but in general, I would say new behavior is coming from four different places, right? It's either a new product that is being introduced to the market, a new product could be a derivative of a new technology. It's new price, right? Gmail is free, Waze is free. It's maybe a new business model. Just think of all the scooters that you have on hire on, you know, on most of the major cities in the world today. And this is a new business model simple as that. And maybe it's new information that change, either the supply or the demand. And the result is that the, the you shift, you create a shift in the, uh, in the supply or the demand, the new market. equilibrium. And in many cases, if you want to offer something new, then you need to be able to say how the new market is going to look like. And then the next question is going to be who is going to be out of market, if you are successful. When we started Waze, they were navigation devices like TomTom uh, Tom and Garmin and so forth. They were navigation apps. There were actually some navigation apps that were providing navigation apps to mobile operators and they were offering that to their customers and they all disappeared. Right? And they were um, in-car navigation systems that actually coming back these days with uh, um, the ability to connect to the smartphone through Apple Play or Android Auto. And then you look at the number of navigation devices today in car navigation systems, and you end up with way more than there were before, right? Because everyone realized that, okay, wait a minute, people are using Waze or, and they should have their own ways when they go into the car. And, uh, but it's way better on the large screen, right? And so we ended up with way more people using Waze. In their car, not on their phone, but on this on the main screen of the of the car today, than any other um, you know any any trajectory mm-hmm. of any of the in car navigation systems ever
0: made. Wow, it's amazing. Okay. By the way, by the way, random question: What's your favorite uh, ways uh, voice? Because uh, like right now, I mean, this is obviously a newer feature, but I use Arnold Schwarzenegger's Terminator uh, guidance. What do you like?
1: Um, You know what? I'm using the default. Really? You haven't played
0: with those features?
1: I played because I had to. But as a user, I'm looking for the simplest things. And so mm-hmm. I ended up with that, uh, but, but I did. Uh, um, You know, th- this is pretty amazing. I Obviously, I would know more features on Waze, or at least back then, I knew more features on Waze than any other traditional user that we had. Um, and some of them I've used uh, uh, because I tried them and uh, um, and uh, ended up to like them. The, the calendar,
0: them, you mentioned the calendar option, also the option that tells you when you need to leave.
1: Which is actually very powerful, right? Because uh,
0: um,
1: what it does, if you allow ways to connect to your calendar, then it will look up your meetings and if they have a, a place. Uh, then it will tell you, actually, it will calculate the travel time that is required and will alert you not five or 10 minutes before the meeting, but five or 10 minutes before you actually need to, to go on your journey. And so this is uh, um, ended up to be very powerful and, and uh, prevents people the excuse for being late.
0: I like it. I mean, you mentioned a lot of interesting uses also that a lot of people, I think it was, was it in... I don't remember, South America or something, or just in general, where 20% of people just like having Waze on because of, uh, you know, because of basically hazards and traffic cameras and whatnot, right? Like speed traps.
1: That was in Chile. And when I found out that uh, I was trying to see if it's worthwhile to actually try to explain to them to change the behavior, but they've told me this is how ways should be
0: used. And you said in Germany, it isn't as useful. For some reason, the Germans don't seem to like to share uh, speed maps, uh, like as uh, often.
1: The, I think that the more significant reason why it never took off in, in Germany was um, because Germans have the tendency to think that if it's free, it's not good enough. Mm. And they want something better. And they are willing to pay for something better. And so that was the general sense that we had at the beginning um, whether or not this is actually the real reason or not, I don't know. It might be a combination of both.
0: Interesting. You also mentioned some interesting, uh, um, dilemmas during the book there. There's a phase uh, during the early days of ways when it was just in Israel and, uh, you had to deal with a trucking company, uh, to provide some services and basically you couldn't provide them and they kept offering more money. At some point they offered a million dollars a month if you could, Get, you know, uh, basically optimize their uh, their routes for them. And uh, and it was a hard decision, but ultimately you guys said no and decided to focus on consumers, which, you know, it seems like the right decision in retrospect, but um, that does not seem like an easy decision to make. So, um,
1: so let me start with the end game, right? When you make a decision, you don't know what it would be like if you would choose a different path. So if we would have said yes to them, You could tell me different scenarios and we simply don't know. And therefore, when you make a decision, it is the right decision. There are right decisions or no decisions, because you don't know what it would be like if you will choose a different path.
0: Let me ask you, is that kind of, in a way, uh, a sort of army officer kind of like pragmatic uh, approach to life, in a way?
1: uh, It's... it's probably something different, right? Um, you don't look back; you look mm-hmm. only you only look forward, right? And so, for for example, if I would speak with many people and I would tell them, okay, here is a here is a time machine. Here you can click on the bottom and go to any any different time that you would like, and then come back. Where would you go? And what I heard from most people is that they will go back into a place that they think they made a mistake and fix that.
0: And I would go to the future. Because, so, you, so you, you don't have any regrets?
1: You know, we always have regrets, but I leave them behind me. I move forward.
0: You don't, you don't stay, you don't linger on those regrets. Exactly.
1: I don't, and st- I don't get stuck there.
0: Yeah. That's a very, very healthy thing. Um, okay. I I realize we're, we're about to run out of time, but just maybe two more quick things just towards the future. Uh, you know, you've made a lot of money, you keep making a huge impact on the world. Um, as a family man, I wonder like, how important is it to leave like a big financial legacy for your children? Is it not, do you want them to kind of fend for themselves? What's, uh, do you have any, 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 any philosophies you could share on that?
1: So, um, what is it that we want for our children? Right, Because I have five. And together with my wife, we actually have seven. What is it that we want for them? We want them to be happy in their own way. And so what we need to teach them is what we need to, to you know, to encourage them is to find their happiness. And it could be very different than what we think. In many cases, I would say we need to encourage them to fail because if they fail, then that's actually empower them to become more successful and explore their boundary and get out of their comfort zone and find out what is it that they like.
0: And by the way, you do mention that in the book, I should say. The book has so so many nuggets. You do mention how important that is.
1: And, uh, um, and to a certain extent, I would say the um, the... One of the ways for, for people to become so, to become happy is, you know, if they are if they feel that they are fulfilling their destiny, if they are creating value, if they find something that they are good at and that they like. Now, you don't know what it's going to be, right? You are at the age of 20 or the age of whatever. You don't know what it's going to be. You will need to explore. And you will need to not to be afraid to fail and discover that this is not the right path. And what you really want to do as a parent is encourage them to explore and find out what is it that they really like, and that they're good at. Because at the end of the day, this is what is going to make their life happier, or at least the professional life happier. Right? Obviously, mm-hmm. on top of that, you know, you would say, okay, wait a minute, how do you build a, um, a happy relationship? And it ended up that uh, many people get stuck in non-happy relationships.
0: But, but how does money come into that?
1: It enables you to make more experiments.
0: Okay, okay, so you want to basically use money to also enable the children, your children also to make more experiments? Yes. Got it, okay, so it's a good answer. Is there, is there too much money one can give to one's kids, you think?
1: Look, um, you know, part of what we want for the kids is that they have their own drive. Because if they don't yeah. have a drive, then they will, they will not get to find out what is it that makes them happy. What is it that they are good at and and creates I mean an impact, right? Yep. And so obviously, you will need to find out what is the drive for them and encourage them to use that drive, that internal drive, to uh, to feed what I call the the the. Uh, the 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 flywheel circle of life which is you know th- this is a this is gonna be your dream or your passion and then it leads into a plan and execution and then there should be a reward or recognition that feeds back into the same loop and and then you can do it forever right and so if you have this uh, uh, this this thing that is make you passionate about that you want to uh, keep on doing that and you know how to execute that, um, then you will end up at uh, having a happy life.
0: Okay, I love it. Uh, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Maybe, oh, maybe one last one, last one. You mentioned in the book that about one out of a thousand startups becomes a unicorn. Um, how, how many, do you have any expectations for how many more unicorns you'll be involved with?
1: Um, So, so I think that out of my existing startups, few of them are going to become unicorns and uh, um, and um, unless you know someone will come with a proposal beforehand but uh, but many of them are creating a lot of value and to a certain extent, I would say if you're creating a lot of value and you don't give up, you will become successful.
0: So you're not done basically, which is great. love it Never. All right, thank you Uri. It's been thank a pleasure. You.
1: Thank you, I appreciate that.